Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday to gather together and put ourselves under the means of grace. And as we do so, we realize that in everything we must have faith in what you've said and trust in your finished work. And that, Lord, we thank you for. And we pray that your word would change us as we believe and as we hear and as we obey what you say. Lord, we pray for the the scattered flock around the world. Thank you for them. And may they know that they're loved and cared for and help them find fellowship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. 2 Corinthians 8, and we were on verse 4. Let me set the stage here. The Macedonians had been very generous, and Macedonia was north of Achaia, where one finds Corinth. So Paul had been in Macedonia and was taking up this collection to bring relief to the saints in Judea who were very poor and needy. And even though the Macedonians also were poor and they were under heavy persecution, they had actually begged Paul for the favor, the Greek word charis, grace, to participate generously in the offering. And so Paul is explaining that and using their example as an encouragement to the uh, Corinthians to, to do likewise. Now look at verse 3. We talked about verse 3, but I hadn't done the cross-references yet according to my notes here. So let's, let's do that. Let me read the verse. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, the word ability, dunamis, power, they gave of their own accord. And I pointed out a couple of weeks ago that the, the word translated own accord could be translated of their free will or freely, uh, being freely willing. And uh, the words mean, the word means to choose for oneself. So therefore, giving is rightly attached to the idea of free will. So sometimes when we talk about a free will offering, that's really a biblical idea, because that's exactly what this was. They, they weren't under compulsion. They weren't under some divine loss about how much they had to give or if they gave. But in this case, they made a choice to give because that's what they wanted to do. And as I've been pointing out, as we're introducing chapter 8 and actually chapter 9 of Second Corinthians, that the key theological term in this chapter is the term charis, grace. And it's used many times, um, and both as grace that God gave them and the gracious work that happened in them as a result of the grace of God. So that's the points we've been making. Now, I have some cross-references that we didn't get a chance to... Uh, actually, there's a bunch of concentrated ones. Let's just all turn together to Exodus 35, and I'm going to read several verses there. Exodus 35 is about when they were going to obtain what they needed to build the tabernacle. Verse 5 of Exodus 35 says, Take from among you 
a contribution to the Lord, whoever is of a willing heart, let, it, let him bring it as the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze. Notice, again, we have this idea of, of being willing. Whoever is of a willing heart. Same idea, 2 Corinthians 8, 3. Now, jump down to verse 21. It says, And everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, came and brought the Lord's contribution for the work of the tent of meeting, and for all of its service, and for the holy garments. Then all whose hearts moved them, both men and women, came and brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and bracelets, all the articles of gold, so did every man who presented an offering of gold to the Lord. And then in verse 29, the Israelites, all the men and women whose heart moved them to bring material for all the work which the Lord had commanded through Moses to be done, brought a free will offering to the Lord. Now, I realize that this was just a special instance, the, the building of the tabernacle, and that they did have a prescribed system of tithing in place under the old covenant that was there for the week-to-week-to-week-to-week life of the Israelites in order to support the priesthood and so on. But I'm pointing this out that already in the Old Testament you had this concept of free will when it came to bringing an offering to the Lord. And what we've said and uh, elsewhere in, in this very class is that the Old Testament system of tithing as part of the law of God was not adopted under the New Covenant. Okay? And, and not any more so than circumcision or the food laws or any other of the prescribed things that were of the covenant law under the Old Covenant. So in the New Testament, giving is always like what they were doing for the tabernacle. It's always something that people do as they're willing and as the Lord moves their hearts and so on and so forth. That's how I read it. And uh, Dick and I did a radio show on this one time. It's on our website, cacministry.org. Go to radio, click show all. <laughs> by series, and scroll down, and it's on there somewhere. Yeah, actually, there's a search function. That might be even faster. Okay, Sam, could you read or look up 1 Chronicles 29.9 and Norma, Acts 11.29, and Brian, 1 Corinthians 16.2. Okay. 1 Chronicles 29.9. Then the people rejoiced because they had offered so willingly, for they made their offering to the Lord with a whole heart, and King David also rejoiced greatly. Yeah, so there's the same idea. They rejoiced and they gave willingly. And that's it's really the bottom line about giving no matter, uh, no matter what, is that people shouldn't ever be subjected to somebody trying to drag money out of them against their will. It's just, it should never happen under any circumstance. Always, always, always giving is a grace. That's why the word grace is central to Paul's teaching about giving. And uh, as, as I said here a couple of weeks ago, this is just a revolutionary idea. And I, I don't know that I've ever heard, as I said, in all the years I've been a Christian, no one having gone through Bible college and seminary, I don't know that I've ever heard anybody just take up when they're going to talk about stewardship or 
development. You know, if you have a nonprofit, they'll have a development. Development means how do you get money? I don't think I've ever once heard anybody just explain this the way it's explained by Paul in Second Corinthians. And uh, it, it's really very easy. Just if people receive grace, the Lord stirs their hearts, and they willingly give, and they do so with the joy of the Lord. And that's how you do it. That's, that's, that's the simplest idea I ever heard of. And I think our fear is, well, then they won't give. I'm not worried about that. that. That's part of God's providence as far as I'm concerned. In other words, if there's something I think I would want to do as a Christian leader, and the people that I know that might help, if they don't give because the Lord didn't stir their heart, then that's part of his providence telling me not to do the thing I wanted to do. Do you see what I mean? Okay. Okay, Norma, Acts 11. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. Yeah, there it says in proportion to which they had means. Maybe at the end of this, somebody remind me. It might be a while, but when we get down with Second Corinthians 8 and 9, remind me to sit down and go through all this stuff and then make kind of a summary of, of what we learned about giving by the time we got done. Maybe you can help by thinking of points. Maybe I'll miss some. What did we learn about giving uh, through the material in the New Testament? Because we're going to be doing a lot of the cross-references. So there's a cross-reference. So the proportional idea is there in the New Testament. At least, of course, it's descriptive that that's what they did. But go ahead, uh, Brian. I was going to say we should try that with our income taxes as our heart is stirred. <laughs> Well, when it comes to the IRS, they don't care about your heart is stirred or not. <laughs> no, that's of no concern to them. All right, go ahead. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, and there be no collections, that there be no collections when I come. Yeah, so there it says... Uh, it's a very similar idea. So I think you could add that in there, that proportionally, as the Lord blesses us, then we give. Okay. So that's a, that's a legitimate idea found in Acts in, in, in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2. And the first day of the week there is interesting that they were already gathering on Sundays at the time when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. All right, to our next verse, 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 4 begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Now, here's that same idea of, of as the Lord stirs the hearts, and uh, the word favor in the Greek is charis, grace. So they begged for the grace of participation is the word koinonia, fellowship. So... Here we have giving connected to grace and to fellowship. Fellowship, favor of fellowship in the support of the saints. And this would be very much like what we read in Exodus about the people 
whose hearts were stirred and they willingly gave for the work of building the tabernacle. I see I have a cross or quote here. Um, Joanne, could you look up Romans 15, 24 to 26, and Dick, Matthew 10, 42, and Larry, 1 John 3, 16 to 18. Hmm. Oh, here's kind of a list. I see. I have One of my um, scholars here had a list of the different words that are used in in. in the context of giving in the, here in these verses. Greek words. The first one is grace, charis, used in 8, 4, 6, 7, and 19. Partnership or sharing, koinonia, one we just read, 8, 4. Service, diakonia, diakonia, where we get our word deacon, 8, 4, 9, 1, 9, 12, 9, 13. Earnestness, Spude, 8-8. Love, agape, 8-7-8 and 24. You don't have to write all these down, by the way. If anybody wants it, ask me afterwards, and maybe I'll uh, make a, a photocopy of this or something and email it. Willingness, prothymia, 8-11-12-19 and 9-2. Generosity, haplotes, 8-2-9-11 and 13. Abundance, 814. Liberal gift, 820. Undertaking, hypostasis, interesting word. Hypostasis is uh, where, we, where we get the Greek for the hypostatic union in, when you're talking about the two natures of Christ. Hypostasis, 94. Blessing, eulogia, 95. Good work, uh, ergon agathon, 98. The yield of your righteousness, 9.10, and service, liturgia. That's interesting. Liturgia is a word that's quite different from diakoneia. Diakoneia would be service like doing work for the Lord or serving the Lord. But liturgia is a word that's connected with priestly service. Okay? So there's an interesting list of of, uh, words that Paul uses in connection with giving in the New Testament. And then uh, Dr. Garland says this, Paul gives the impression that he has taken, he was taken aback by the Macedonians' eagerness and generosity. They gave beyond their means and did so without Paul's encouragement, let alone his insistence. If it comes from grace, then it not, cannot come from coercion. They gave beyond anything he anticipated because they gave of themselves. The quantity of what they gave does not matter to Paul, but the spirit in which they gave it does. With God, a couple of mites can far outweigh a ton of gold bullion. In keeping with this divine outlook, Paul never mentions the word money when talking about his project. He cloaks the whole enterprise in language that has both a formal administrative character and a theological character. It is a ministry, and the word ministry, diakonia, had a technical meaning in Judaism for supporting the needs of the poor. For Paul, however, this ministry is far more than simply delivering aid to poor people. It had a major theological consequences and was something he was prepared to risk his life to carry out. Business language is therefore hardly adequate to describe it, so he resorts to theological language. Then we have that list of all these terms, theological terms, that are connected here with giving. Okay, uh, Romans 15:24 to 26.
Whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Okay, so there's a cross-reference for this whole offering that's going to go to help the saints in Jerusalem. He mentions it in the book of Romans, and he mentions Macedonia and Achaia. Macedonia, where we have the church of Thessalonica, and Philippi, and Achaia, where we have the Corinthian church. Okay? Okay, Matthew 10:42. Interesting choice. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Yeah, That's, that sort of underscores what Garland was saying. It isn't how much the people give, um, but the spirit in which they give it. Okay? And so if you give a cup of cold water in, in, in the Lord's did it say in my name? Dick? Oh, you already lost it. Okay. Just give a cup of cold water. Okay. Um, and then uh, Larry had the First John passage starting with verse 16. First John 3 starting with verse 16. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Okay. So in, in John, I see the point there. Uh, remember the word koinonia means fellowship, which means sharing a common life together. So in an understanding of the New Testament is that Christians were sharing a common life together because they're brothers and sisters in Christ and they're part of the family of God. So when you see your brother fellow Christian, in need, and close your heart, there is evidence of a lack of Christian love. But uh, notice the, the, that's where these theological terms, fellowship, you know, generosity. And so Christians care for one another because they're part of the same family. They're, they're part of the family of God. And that's what it says. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to go to, before I start the next verse, Dick has reminded me that somebody asked me about something after a Sunday school class a few, few weeks ago. And what do you know, I remembered it. <laughs> because when people say, uh, beware, if you tell me something on a Sunday morning, I will forget it. <laughs> so tell Diane, tell somebody, don't tell me, because my mind is focused on that sermon. And... Everything goes into the sermon, and then everything else kind of goes out. <laughs> At least that's my excuse, and I'm sticking with it. <laughs> it could have something to do with old age, but we won't bring that one up. Now, um, somebody came up after a Sunday school class and asked me, okay, when it comes to fundraising in churches, what do you think about faith pledges? Interesting question. Don't you think that's very applicable? What, what about faith pledges? Do you know what those are? Let me explain. that. Uh, and I, these things must have been around for a long time because when I was a brand new Christian, they were doing it. And that was in the early 70s. And I bet you it goes back longer than that. Uh, I don't know who, who invented the idea, but it's been a really 
prominent fundraising technique has been used for years. The faith pledge is this. Let's say the church wants to build a new educational wing, and they need to raise so much money. And the money's not in the budget, and the people may not have enough money to give towards it or whatever. And so they ask people to make faith pledges. And the faith pledge is this. I pledge to give $10,000 or $5,000 or however much the amount is by such and such a date, and I'm going to believe God to send me the money. Right? You've heard of that? Okay. Now, somebody said, is that a legitimate way to raise money? And I'm going to say my answer is no. Now, let me tell you why. I'll tell you why I think it's not right to do that. Number one, there's, there, let's put you, all Christian leaders should put themselves in the seat of the person who's being asked to do something and think about it from their perspective. So, okay, I'm sitting here. I don't have enough money to contribute toward this new building. So they're asking me to pledge money I don't have in faith that God is going to give me that much money by such and such a date, and then when he does, I give it to the church. Okay, what's wrong with that? Well, number one, do you want to comment on it first? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I... It puts people in a, in a really awkward position. And uh, for one thing, I think it's a way for the church to get any possible money that comes into somebody's hands and get it. Because most people end up getting a birthday gift or a, uh, maybe an income tax refund or you might get a Christmas bonus at work or you know, maybe you're self-employed and you make a sale that you didn't know you were going to make. And so then that money has to go to the church because you've made a faith pledge. So how do you know God sent it versus the just, I guess he sends everything. So you'd have to assume God sent it if you got money from any source for any reason. So it's sort of like guaranteeing the church gets any extra money that comes into everybody's pocket over the next so many months. Number two, number two, it puts a person in a position of saying, okay, I, may, I, I believe God for $5,000 to give to the church, and if the money doesn't come in, you're tempted to go take it out alone or do something because the fact is you don't want to go admit you don't have any faith. Okay, so now you not only have a failure of giving, you have a failure of faith. Well, I guess the money didn't come in because I didn't have enough faith and I don't want to have to go tell the pastor I don't have faith. So I better come up with the money. That's it. I'm just thinking like the person in the pew. That's how I would feel. If I made a faith pledge, I wouldn't want to renege on it, even if I didn't have the money. So I might go put myself in debt or do something that's not appropriate. Um, i got a better idea. Why doesn't the church leadership trust God and just say, here's what we'd like to do? If anybody would like to give towards it, fine. And if the money comes in, we'll do it. I remember that, Dick, do you remember? We know what it's like to be elders of a poor church. Yeah, we, yeah. We, we were in a real dire circumstances for some years being in a building that was too big for us and, and not having any, any, any room in the budget. Okay, so if something happened like the water main broke and we're responsible for the line that comes to our church, which happened, and it was going to be $1,500, we couldn't do it. 
Okay, so we were, we were like an emergency situation. And in that situation, for years, for years, how many years? I, don't know, I can't even know how many years it was like that. And we, want, we needed a new carpet badly. Remember that? And so we started talking about it and chose the color in 1987. No, you know what I remember that? We, when we, whatever, yeah, 86, the year we painted the walls. We chose the color and said, okay, we're going to recarpet in this color when we have enough money for it. What year did we do that? 94? No, it was later than that. No, because it was after I was the senior pastor, and that was 95. I think it was more closer to 2000. Yeah, I remember at the time, it took 13 years before we had the carpet money. <laughs> so uh, that's just, okay, if the Lord wants the carpet in this building 13 years, well, the other one got a little threadbare, but we did, we did get the carpet, didn't we? And I still found the patch for the color we were supposed to have from years before. <laughs> they just didn't make it anymore. That's true. Okay, yes. <laughs> well, wouldn't faith uh, pledging be bordering on presumptuousness? Uh, very good. That, that's a, God is going to yeah, it's, I think it's being presumptuous. For one thing, oh, Bible verse. Turn with me to the book of James. I think it's in chapter 4. I'm glad you brought that up, um, Doug, the, the presumptuous idea. Shouldn't a church use the same kind of wisdom that God expects from a businessman? Shouldn't church leaders use godly business principles? I mean, when it comes to things that have to do with business, being how now, nowadays churches actually own buildings and things, which they didn't in Paul's day, we have business decisions that have to be made. Uh, let me find it here. I want the one about the presumptuous businessmen. 4.13. There it is. Here's what it says. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Now, this, this is a very informative section here. I've used this when talking about the doctrine of providence and also when talking about these personal words from God. Now, here's another thing, uh, Doug, this idea of, of presumptuousness. There's several levels of presumption going on. First of all, the church leaders that decided that they had to have a new uh, building are presuming that they know that that's what God wants. Okay? New buildings, it's fine to plan a new building, but that's part of providence. And we may find it's great, plan a business, plan to have a business, and every businessman that plans a business plans to make a profit or you wouldn't plan a business, would you? Nobody plans to go lose money in a business. You can do that just staying home watching TV. All right? So, but, the, well, so it's not wrong. These guys are not told that they're bad for wanting to go or even wanting to make a profit. They're bad for boasting about the unknown future. Because you don't know you're going to be alive and you don't know your business is going to succeed. So you should say, 
Verse 15, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this and that. So I've used that to show if the New Testament had the idea that God is going to reveal these things to us ahead of time by special revelation, then we would, then, then, then this verse would say, you should have prayed and asked God to tell you his will, and then only done it if he told you. But it doesn't say that, because you don't know what his will is in regard to providence, because it's unrevealed. And, and you're not a prophet, and you're not Moses, and you're not Jesus, so you don't get personal revelations that are binding and authoritative and inerrant. So you don't know. So all the, the Lord's asking is that you admit you don't know, and realize that give us this day our daily bread. I would like to eat today. Uh, it says in Luke 12, which I'm going to preach on. I'm in Luke 12 this week, and next week I'm going to get to the section where it says, if you have food and shelter, you should be content. The Lord takes care of the lilies of the field. He takes care of you. And so the church leaders should say, we think it would be nice to build and to have a new whatever educational wing or whatever it is we'd like to do. But we don't know whether that's God's will. But it's okay to make plans. It's okay to show the plans to people. But we should say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this. And if he doesn't, we won't. And how we find out God's will is whether God gives us a means to pay for it. That's how you find out his will. And if he doesn't, it's like a carpet. Well, we would like to have carpet. And 13 years later, we had a means to pay for it, so we got carpet. <laughs> People have done worse things than worship God on a bare, threadbare carpet. So why, the, what's wrong with the faith, faith pledge? Because it's presuming on several levels. It's presuming that these church leaders know that God wants them to do this, so much so that they tell people to, to pledge the money to build the thing before they have the money, before the thing's built. So they're presuming that they know for a fact this is what God wants, when they do not know in fact this is what God wants, and the, forcing the people to become presumptuous themselves because they're presuming that God wants to give them money they, to give them money to give away that they don't have and that God hasn't promised to give them. All right? I don't know that God wants to give me $10,000 so I can give it to the church. I don't know that. So I'm being presumptuous to make a pledge on money I don't have. And, 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 then, and then in a sense, I'm tempting God. It's like jumping off the pinnacle of the temple. Okay, well, God, you've you got to prove that you're a loving God by catching me on the way down. Don't, don't jump off to start with, and then God doesn't have to decide whether to catch you or let you splat. Right? So I think that the whole thing is really presumptuous from beginning to end. So we're in totally agreement with you, Doug. <laughs> okay. Roger. Could you also imply from that that treating a faith, a, a faith promise like that or a faith pledge puts faith into the class of a man controllable force that obligates God to react? Yeah, it's very much like the faith thing. Yeah. I like the word of faith idea that God's obligated because I have faith he has to do something. You know, from a leadership point of view, there's... Uh a real unkindness there also. Instead of the leadership taking on the, if you will, the tension of saying we have a thing that we have to do and we have to work on how are we going to accomplish that. Yes. It's taking that burden, putting it on people, oh. and saying I want you to sweat over the next three years of your promise and worry yeah. about how you're going to take care of this rather than we. Yeah, we'll take, us bearing the burden, burden of yeah. it. Yeah, the leadership should bear the burden if 
the thing that the leadership wants to do is legitimate. I agree with you, Dick, that they should bear the burden of being of the worry, not not worry, but uh, putting their emotional attention into how, what they're going to do and how they're going to do it, not shift it to everybody else, although we're all in this together. But we should all be all in it together, doing it the Lord's way. And we saw in verse after verse, both in Exodus and in First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 8, and then in some of these other instances in Acts and in Corinthians, that giving is free will. And let me tell you a story. Somebody called me this week and told me about what happened to him at a former church that offended him. The, the church wanted to build, maybe that's why I was talking about educational link, because his story involved that. They wanted to build some sort of a building to, to do education in. And they needed so many million dollars. And so they asked for these faith pledges to be made. And the church had put a date on it. The church says, okay, we, we want so much money. We want everybody to make their pledge. And the pledges have to be delivered by such and so a date. And if they're not, then we're not going to build a building. We'll, trust, we'll believe that God didn't want us to do it. Well, what happened was it came to the date, and they decided they still wanted to do it. And they 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 said, no, just keep giving the money. We, we're going to do it anyhow, even though we didn't get the money by the date. And so the person that called me this week said, I, he said, you know what, I'd pledged a lot of money, and that offended me. He said, I pledged a lot of money, and the date came, and then they were going to still do it. He says, so you know what I did? He says, I bought a brand new car with that money and drove it up in church on Sundays. <laughs> That's my money. I'm going to buy a car with it. <laughs> That was a funny story. <laughs> there. <laughs> he bought a car. Just drove it. <laughs> I don't... <laughs> Anyhow, um, that got me thinking about this whole thing. We don't have to do that. For one thing, setting the date is assuming that you know something that God hasn't revealed. We don't have to set a date. We can just say, here's what we'd like to do. And, and we're very patient. And then if it never happens, then I guess it wasn't God's providential will. Yes. If you're going to believe in God for five or ten grand, why not have a whole lot of faith and believe in 50 or 100 grand is coming your way? Well. <laughs> you get into degrees of, yeah. you know, and, and, and that's wrong too. So. Well, well, see, that's why I think Paul said that according to his ability, or he, in these uh, proportionally, First Corinthians 16. Uh, I mean, within reason of what your world is. But I, I don't, I'm just saying, don't pledge ahead of time. Say if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. Yeah. And if your and if your church leaders say they're doing the building project to usher in the kingdom of oh. God, that would be another issue you'd have to deal. Okay. With. <laughs> Give it back to that. Let me let me tell you something about the kingdom of God. Yeah, I've heard that. Have you heard that? Well, we we got to build this for the kingdom. Let me tell you, the kingdom of God does not have a zip code. <laughs> okay? And the kingdom of God isn't gaining property because we gain property, and it isn't losing property because we lose property. The kingdom of God is Christ reigning at the right hand of God and citizens coming into the kingdom as the gospel's preached. So the only thing that really enhances 
the kingdom is the proclamation of the gospel that adds citizens to it. The kingdom doesn't come to earth until the king returns and sets up his throne. And when he does, it's all going to be his. Okay, Doc. I'd like to have you expound a lot more on that leadership thing. I don't think the leaders have any more faith than I have or the rest of us. No, I don't and know. And they shouldn't take any more of a burden on a particular thing than, than the rest of us. Well, yeah, we, ha- we share the burdens together, but the leaders are responsible for making decisions for the well-being of the flock. Okay? So the bur- there's, there, there's always going to be special burdens that leaders have. That's why the well, deacons are leaders, and their, their name means serving. Serving. So in, in serving, there's a burden for the care of the flock. And so uh, that's true, but when it comes to the providential will of God, we're all together, don't know it. I don't know where, I mean, we didn't know whether God wanted us to move into this building. And, and you, those of you who were here when we were in the old building, remember how we said that? We said, if the Lord wills. This is the, this is, follow, just follow Acts, or I mean James. We don't know that God wants us to move into a synagogue. That's not revealed. Uh, we would like to, and I'm sure glad we're here. <laughs> it's been a blessing beyond um, uh, you can imagine. Somebody called me yesterday that I hadn't talked to for probably th- two or three years, who many years ago attended when we were downtown and, and was asking me about the new situation. I said, I didn't know how much of a burden that building, being in that building was until we left it. I didn't know how much of my energy that thing was burning up uh, just because of problems attached to having an old building in a bad neighborhood. It was just burning up stuff that should be going toward the gospel. But the Lord knows. Yes, Mr. Certainly, if, if everything rests on faith, and Paul prayed to have the thorn removed from his side, now, I don't have the faith of Paul, so I don't know how I can expect, I mean, if, if, his, if his prayer was uh, declined, okay? And, and, and furthermore, Christ... Uh, taketh this cup from me, you know. But now I mean, my will but thine. Yeah, yeah uh, so if everything rests on faith, and, and Paul and Christ himself uh, didn't have their petitions uh, uh, signed, um, what can we expect? Yeah, we can't have enough faith to change God's providential will for us. <laughs> okay, if providentially God is going to, let, let's go back to our businessmen, so we're going to go here, there, and we're going to make this much profit. He said, no, this is boasting in your arrogance. You should have said, if the Lord wills. Why? For one thing, you don't know that you're going to be alive long enough to do this. If God gives me breath, then I, I will do this. And you don't know you're going to make a profit. So God does that too. Okay, uh, yes, it's great. Several years ago, I attended a church that they're in a building program, but they spent $20,000 hiring a consultant to help convince the people how much they had to... $20,000 for a consultant, consultant to convince them to give? Yes, yes. That's, yes. So, oh. that's not unusual. Oh. How, it's, you know, isn't it sad that how far we've slid from just the simple principles of the New Testament that we just need to do? And, and maybe we're too temporally minded. All these buildings are going to go up in smoke. The way I read it. <laughs> okay. So, 
We don't need, we just need to, a facility facilitates, that's all we need to do. Facilitate what? Hopefully the preaching of the gospel and the teaching the word of God to our children. That's all we want to do, facilitate the means of grace. What are the means of grace? Um, Acts 2.42, they, 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 had the apostle, they had the apostles teaching, prayer, breaking bread, and their fellowship around those things. Together, share. In other words, corporately sharing those needs is fellowship. Is what fellowship is. So the Lord's blessed us because this, I think this building facilitates those things. That's all we need to do. If it does that, it's, it's good building. Yes. I think I can uh, say amen to that because yeah, the mean God sanctifying us through His means of grace is almost exactly what I get out of verse seven in Second Corinthians eight where uh, Paul says, just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see also that you excel in this grace of giving. So all these things that presumably we have all these things because God has sanctified us, mm-hmm. so therefore we will excel in grace of giving, right. along with all these other ways right. we're excelling in God. That's a good, that's a good point. So is, if God answers a petition, then you're saying that was his providential will. And I'm thinking of in context of that King Hezekiah who God said he was going to die and then he turned to the wall and mourned like a dove and said, give me more years to live, you know. And God and answered it. Yeah. So how yeah, that? we can pray. We can pray for our for outcomes that we w- that we wish for. But in the end, now you made a good point, Rick. If any of you ever used to be under the word of faith teaching, they teach that if you say, if it be thy will, that's a sign of unbelief. Right? But it's okay for Jesus to do that? (laughs) Okay. Um, The fact is, we're told to do that in the book of James. Where they should have said, if the Lord wills. Okay, so we're, we're literally told to do that. We do not want to be presumptuous. But don't let that deter you from prayer. We need to pray for things, even some things that we know might not happen. I just thought of something else in that regard. Oh, man. Uh, let me quick say it. Somebody, several people asked this one. I, I've got a couple of emails from people who have horrible family situations. One person whose daughter, grown daughter, is... Uh, just unsaved and new age and just a horrible thing going on. Okay. And, and I've got a few more. And what do you do? Well, you pray. And, but sometimes we feel like, well, why pray for something that doesn't seem like it's ever going to happen? Let me give you an example of why. So when it comes to these things, we, we should pray. Now, and this one came to mind the other day, and I need to give an answer to some people who are asking about this. Paul in Romans 9, turn with me to Romans 9. I'll, I'll show you why pray for a situation that you know may very well be hopeless. It's not, it's, by the way, it's never totally hopeless with the Lord. <laughs> it may just look that way to us. But in this case, Paul knew that for the most part, his prayer would go unanswered. 
starting in chapter 9 at the beginning, and I'm going to just read this, a little bit of this, and then we're going to go to chapter 10. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises whose are the fathers from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God, blessed forever. Amen. Then he goes into an entire chapter explaining why most of the Jews aren't saved. Because God only intended to save a remnant. It was God's intention to save a remnant, and it's the reason why most of them are unsaved. So, if you wanted to think fatalistically, you could say, okay, God's only going to save a few and he's done that, so why pray? Turn to chapter 10. All right, after Paul said only a remnant's going to be saved, that's the answer to why. Now, God's promise didn't fail because God promised to save a remnant and he did. There's no failure here, even though his, this entire nation is not serving God. Just a remnant, that, 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 like Paul. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Wow. (laughs) Why pray? Because it's the right thing to do, and we don't know who God's going to save. And we don't know who the prodigal's going to be. A lot of people raise prodigals. (laughs) Okay? And you don't know about what that prodigal might actually come to his or her senses and come back as a new person. So pray. Because we don't know. Does that make sense? So, so when, we, when somebody says, well, what should I do about my rebellious teenager who won't go to church and won't listen to God, and we say pray, sometimes people think, well, what kind of an answer is that? That's what Paul did. His, his rebellious brethren that he could wish himself the curse for Christ that would do any good. He said he knows, they're not, he, he knows they're not going to be saved. Chapter 11 says not until the end, after the fullness of the Gentiles come in. But he still prayed earnestly for their salvation. So there you go. Is that a good lesson? I thought about that this week. All right, we've got to get to another verse. So they begged for the grace of koinonia, fellowship, for uh, service, and this not as we had expected, verse five. But but they first they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So they the first and most important thing is they gave themselves to the Lord. The another lesson for church leadership here from the Apostle Paul himself. The first thing that's of importance is to know that the people are the Lord's. And that they're in the church because they gave themselves to the Lord. And in a sense, um, in Paul's case, he was an apostle, so it's important that they gave themselves to him because he was the authoritative apostle. We should always keep in mind, this is the Lord's flock. The Lord loves his flock. The Lord laid down his life for his flock. The blood of Jesus was shed so that he could have a a flock. And he said to Peter, feed my sheep. 
He didn't say to Peter, feed your sheep. He said, feed my sheep. These dear ones are precious to the Lord. And he loves them more than anybody can imagine, more than we can love our own children, more than we can love one another, because God's love is perfect. And it's demonstrated by the fact that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, as that passage that Larry read in 1 John 3:16 says. And if that idea is in our minds, that will keep us away from a lot of things that we might be tempted to do. And I'm talking to elders and deacons now the church leadership. We should always, always, always remember this is the Lord's flock, and he loves them so very much. And they don't exist to make church leaders successful. They don't exist to enhance the reputation of church leaders. They don't exist uh, to make church leaders comfortable. They're the Lord's. And how we treat them ought to be so important. I mean, let's, let me give you an analogy that's near to my heart right now because we've got a new baby grandson. And he stayed overnight Friday night. Let me brag about him. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, when he first, the first time I saw a little sigh, Diane says, you want to hold him? I didn't want to. I was afraid he'd break. And it's been so long. I'm just a big old klutz grandfather. But then I got a little bolder, and so I, we're holding this little baby. And last night we were over at Wayne's, and people were, the ladies were taking turns holding the baby. And everybody is absolutely, gets this baby, and is so careful. Because a little baby is 100% dependent on somebody else to even live. To be fed, he can do nothing. And we would never, ever let something happen to that little baby. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wouldn't ever let something happen to that baby. And that's nothing compared to how much God loves you. So, when, when we, excuse me, when we think about how church leaders treat people in the church, these fundraising schemes and scams, some of them are actually cons. There was one over there in Forest Lake where this guy's going to jail for conning the people in the church out of millions of dollars. And you've got to wonder, do they have under these little ones, these are newborn babes in Christ, and they're the Lord's. And he died for them. And he has more love for them than I do for my grandson. And I wouldn't let anything happen to him. The Lord won't let anything happen to you. But what about church leaders that don't care? They only think that the people are there to enhance their own status. And this has become a blight on the body of Christ. And maybe some are listening. I don't know. I thought any church leaders would listen to me. But I'm telling you, forget all this other stuff. These are the Lord's little babies. And, and, and if you were handed somebody's baby, you wouldn't treat them badly. So don't do that to the Lord's flock. Well, that's my little sermon today. James 4.13 through whatever it was, where it talks about the businessman who should say, if the Lord wills. Okay, so Paul is concerned about the welfare of the flock. And so they gave themselves to the Lord. Now, the emphatic position in the Greek, first, is in, this is an emphatic priority of importance. 
Nothing's more important than that, than that they gave themselves to the Lord and explains the cause of their unexpected generosity. Because they give themselves to the Lord, they're part of the family of God. And being part of the family of God, they care about the poor saints in Judea they had never met. But they have a kinship with the brethren in Judea because the people in Macedonia, they were poor, they were persecuted, they had a tough situation in life, and they care that there's other brothers and sisters somewhere in the same situation. So having given themselves to the Lord, they gave themselves to the apostles by the will of God. Or it may mean here that the impetus for their generosity comes from God, depending on how this could be translated. Their generosity exceeded Paul's expectations, and it had to do with the grace of God at work in their lives, and they um, were thereby generous in their contribution to the needs, to the special offering that Paul was collecting. And remember, by the way, that one of the reasons for this was his concern that the church be unified So by the Gentiles in uh, Macedonia and Achaia supporting Jewish Christians in Judea, he was demonstrating that God was taking Jew and Gentile and making one new man. So they cared for them. Here's uh, Barnett says this. Paul's present comments support the canonical status of his writings in the lives of of believers and churches, but they provide no basis for a prelacy in ministers, whether Protestant or Roman Catholic. Now, let me explain. I, I just said that myself. In other words, when Paul says they gave themselves to us by the will of God, that shows that Paul's writings and, the, and, and that Paul was an apostle with a special authoritative representative of God. But that doesn't transfer to prelates, that's a word for hierarchy within a church. Uh, so I don't think anybody, any, whether Protestant or Catholic, can say that you have to give yourself to me because that's God's will, because I have some special status. That does not exist after the death of the apostles. Well, we've got 25 seconds, maybe not. My clock, I think that was slow. Remind, well, I'm going to circle this. I need to do the cross-references on this one. We'll start on verse 6 after we do these cross-references next week. Today we're in Luke 12. We're talking about the parable of the rich fool. So I'll see you upstairs.